Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help com slash sacred text. Chapter eight, the Quidditch World Cup. Clutching their purchases, Mr. Weasley in the lead, they all hurried into the woods, following the lantern lit trail. They could hear the sounds of thousands of people moving around them, shouts and laughter, snatches of singing. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Jackson Bird. And this is a special guest episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Well, we're lucky enough to be joined again by Jackson Bird, regular guest host here And Jackson, as I'm sure you all know, is the author of the wonderful book Sorted and the host of Cool Stuff Ride Home. And most exciting to me is this new-ish gig that you have at the Neo-Futurist. Can you tell everybody a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I recently joined the New York Neo-Futurist, which is like a weird experimental theater company here in New York. And I am currently performing with them every Friday and Saturday night in the East Village here in New York City. We do 30 plays in 60 minutes, and sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're sad. They're usually social justice oriented. So if you're in the New York City area, come check us out. I've never been to the New York one. I've been to the Chicago one a bunch, and it's just my favorite thing. And so next time I'm in New York, I'm going to have to come check out the New York one. Yeah, absolutely. And we just have a couple of announcements before we start, which is that, Jackson, you are going to be at our summer camp next summer, and we're so excited. Yes. Tickets for our summer camp are available now at NotSorryWorks.com. And you're going to stick around for our Every Flavored Bean conversation, in which we're going to actually talk about Birdie Bot's Every Flavored Beans. What? (laughs) It's finally happening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jackson, you have a story for us today through the theme of nostalgia. What story do you have? Yeah. So I'm a very big nostalgia person. I always get very nostalgic and I've taken lots of pictures and videos and kept diaries like my whole life, even since I was small. So I'm I'm very big on nostalgia. But one thing that I have learned over the past like decade of uh, having transitioned is that nostalgia, especially when you are sharing it with people, can take on a different tone as a trans person. So, you know, like when there's Instagram trends or TikTok trends, like there's the one right now uh, of the the teenage dirtbag that people are doing where you use the weedest song and then you share pictures of like how you looked like a dirtbag in high school or something. I would love to do that trend. But like when I participate in things like that, there's sort of like this extra baggage 
page or like explanation because it's like, oh, these pictures are very different than how I look now or how someone might expect me to look if they didn't know that I was trans. It's like this whole this whole thing. And so earlier this year, the theater company I'm a part of, the Neo Futurists, were preparing for a gala, like a fundraiser. And our artistic director had asked if we could all send in photos from high school graduation. And like at first I was like, oh no, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I am comfortable doing this. But then the artistic director was like, and if you don't have those or you don't want to share them, because uh, we do have a few trans members of the ensemble, but also like, you know, maybe someone doesn't want to share it for any other, you know, number of reasons. And so we were given this other option of just take a picture now of you in like a, a graduation cap. And so I like really went for that option. I still had my like high school graduation cap. I dressed up in a suit. I went into like my kitchen. I downloaded one of those apps that like makes pictures that you take look like they were taken on a film camera back in the 90s, which is like closer to what my family camera looked like for my real high school graduation pictures. Uh-huh. And I had my ro- my roommate and I just like did this whole fake photo shoot. We even like poured, I think we didn't have like champagne. So we poured some beer into some champagne flutes <laughs> and we pretended we were like cheersing. And like we've had all these like fake candid shots. <laughs> and uh, I sent I sent them over to the theater company and they really loved them. But I was also just like, I've looked back at those a few times because it's really fun for me to get to look at those and and kind of see, even though it's like fake and it's it's me now, like it feels very affirming in a way of like, this is kind of what I, I wish I looked like or the experience that I wish I had. And so that just sort of got me thinking about like the nature of nostalgia and sort of rewriting our own history in that way and how we can still be nostalgic for that or just about like the the baggage that can sometimes come with nostalgia like so often it's looking at things through rose-colored glasses but it's definitely not the past was not always perfect and I don't know bearing that in mind when we think about nostalgia as well yeah and one person's nostalgia can be another person's like horrible memory yes absolutely I was at a conference once and it was like four old white men on the panel and they started really getting nostalgic for like the 1950s and 60s when they were kids and like the suburbs were safe and you could just go from one house to another and I was like we now know like all of the cultural pressures that were on women at the time to be right like perfect housewives Mm -hmm. and we right like we know all of the oppression that was happening in the background and so I was like that's so cute for you sirs that you are nostalgic but actually these towns were totally something else for everybody else and I feel like in all of these micro ways we have those Mm-hmm. those problems as well, right? One one sibling's fond memory can be another sibling's horrible memory. Oh, yeah. I feel like that's a big part of adulthood is like getting together with, with relatives even and like reminiscing. And then one person's like, that is not how I remembered it. It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, like I didn't realize at the time. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about this chapter. There's even instant nostalgia in this chapter with the omnioculars. It's a great theme Mm -hmm. for this chapter. And so I'm really excited to dive in. So I will recap the chapter first. Can you please count me in for my 30-second recap? Absolutely. Okay. Three, two, one. So we arrive at the like top box and Winky is sitting there and she gives us an update that Dobby is not doing well. He's demanding to get paid. And Harry's like, that sounds reasonable. And then there are the presentations of the mascots and the Vilas, which we'll talk more about, I have no doubt. And then the leprechauns, which we'll talk more about, and I have no doubt. And the the Malfoys come and then sports happen and Crumb takes the snitch and Ireland loses. And then um, Fred and George are like, you owe us money, Bagman. Wow, was that even 30 seconds? What was your time that on was that? was 30 seconds. Oh, nice. Oh, Nicely no, I'd done. have kept going. Are you kidding? <laughs> I use up every second. You got to the end of the chapter. So your very last sentence of the chapter. Because I skipped the middle. This is true. <laughs> it's true that I didn't get to the end. It'd be like running the first mile of a marathon and then like driving and doing the last quarter mile and being like, I finished. That's what I just did. Okay, Jackson, are you ready for your recap? Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. 
All right, so having just purchased uh, a bunch of things for the game, including their Omnioculars, they go all the way up to the top box, the, the fancy seats closest to the action, uh, and Harry sees Winky, and he thinks that she's Dobby at first because he's only ever met one house elf, and then lots of other people come, like um, the Minister of Magic for England and the Minister of Magic of Bulgaria and the Malfoys, and then Ludo Bagman comes, and he commentates the whole game from their box, and then the game happens, and Crumb gets the snitch, and time is almost up, so I guess that's what happened in this chapter. <laughs> Are you a big sports fan, Jackson? Um, no, not historically, <laughs> but I've I actually have recently quite gotten into football. Okay, American or yeah, well, I like both of the footballs. I would uh-huh. say <laughs> I've uh-huh. always liked soccer, but um, yeah, really into American <laughs> football now too. Got it. I was just like, wow, you and I really avoided recapping any of the game. To to be fair, reading an athletic game in a book written by someone who is clearly not athletic is not the most exciting thing. And especially for a recap to be like, I don't know, Ludo Bagman said some people's names. They almost fell. Then the game was over. Like there's no- <laughs> Victor Crumb faked out the Irish the seeker. The faint. Yes, there it is. But this is a kind of nostalgia that I recognize, the nostalgia for sports, right? Sports Mm -hmm. memorabilia, like they're at least in the 90s now, it's probably all on eBay, but there were, there are literal stores for that. Oh, yeah. Right? Like sports is something that people have incredible nostalgia for. And I wonder if it is this thing that we were talking about a little bit at the top of the episode, that there's a thing that actually happened. Right, that a hundred thousand people at the Quidditch World Cup saw the Vronsky faint, and so a hundred thousand people get to be nostalgic about it because there are omnioculars that capture what actually happened, and so it is one of the few things in the world that we all get to be like group nostalgic for. It's one of my defenses of sports, is this like community aspect of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like the collective effervescence, particularly when you're all there in person. But also, you know, we've got televised sports. And so millions of people get to watch that same big moment. And, you know, I think we see that happen with a lot of things that are broadcast live on TV. But with sports, I, I think you're you're hitting on something of like, yeah, it's it's like this this one thing that can happen. It's I mean, it's not. But you can think that it's a little bit more like simple and straightforward and removed from any sort of baggage, even though it's not really. <laughs> right. <laughs> Have you watched the TV series Welcome to Wrexham. It's like a docu-series from Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. No. It's about them buying a Welsh soccer team or football Uh team. But it's actually really wonderful because the series just centers the community of Wrexham. uh, And it is so much about what sports means to that community and what it's meant to them like over generations. And, you know, they're all like, my parents took me to this stadium. I grew up here. This is what this team means to me. And so, you know, that's what I was thinking of as you were saying how there's the nostalgia factor almost more so than really being excited about the sport at all. Like the the excitement for the sport is so much rooted in the nostalgia. Which... There's a nostalgia for the game even before the game starts, right? Ron, Hermione, and Harry are buying memorabilia before there's anything to remember, technically. Now, what they're remembering is walking through the camp, right? And they're they're picking a team. They're picking, you know, fan stuff. But Ron is buying Victor Crumb memorabilia, right? Like, that's not technically Mm -hmm. his team. So they're, they're buying items to remember this event by before the event even happened. And then Harry keeps re-watching these replays to the point that he's missing what's in front of him. Yeah. And Hermione is like, you can't watch the replays and then be mad that you're not seeing things. I have got to say, so I haven't reread this book in a long time, I don't think. I read it a lot as a kid, but reading the omnioculars in our age of smartphones now like i had a mm-hmm. whole different reaction like that line specifically when hermione's like you're gonna miss things if you keep watching through these lenses i was like oh this is like all of us you know recording concerts for our stories on our phone and watching through that instead of actually watching what's happening on stage in front of us and even uh, I, I picked up towards the end of the chapter when like the game is over and people are like all the winners are coming into the box and 
Harry says, the crowd below was applauding appreciatively. Harry could see thousands and thousands of omniocular lenses flashing and winking in their direction. I was like, man, when this was written, that like wasn't really a thing that you would have seen in crowds. But now it is like all the little lit up phones. I mean, there's the stereotype of like every parent at a child's recital, even in the 90s, having their camcorder. Yeah. Right. The big one on your shoulder. (laughs) Exactly. Having a whole sound crew with you. (laughs) (laughs) But there, there is this desire to capture for nostalgia at the expense of being in the moment. And mm-hmm. and I get it, especially with kids. Like, you know, as an adult, you like vaguely look the same for at least like many years at a time, obviously, you know, within within limits. But, you know, I'm 40. I look very similar to how I looked at 37. Whereas, you know, my kid's 10. She looks very different than she did three years ago. And so I understand this desire to like capture each one of those moments and absolutely you're, you're missing what's right in front of you. Yeah. I I go back and forth on that a lot because I'm definitely someone who like historically has leaned towards wanting to capture everything. And I think where I sort of fall now is like, if it's something that is a moment I want to remember, I want to get just like one picture, like one, a couple of seconds of something, and then I put my phone away the rest of the time. So I'll have the one thing, like to me, it's almost like, I guess what it used to be like if you maybe would get one picture or like you go on vacation, you get like one postcard or something like you don't need the whole thing, just like one thing to to spark your memory when you're reminiscing later. Yeah. There's also like really complicated forms of nostalgia. I wonder if Mm -hmm. you're going to think that I'm reaching with this, but. All right, go for it. We'll see. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to try to defend it, though. So Winky, Mm -hmm. there is this change happening in Winky's culture. Dobby is changing things, right? Like Dobby is a real revolutionary within house elves. And Winky is really resisting this change, right? She Mm -hmm. is like, Dobby is not doing well. House elves are made to serve. And I'm wondering if what Winky is holding on to can teach us something about why nostalgia is so important, which is that It's your understanding of the world. I wonder if one of the things that those men on that conference stage were saying was, I understood a version of the world in the 1950s and 60s, and I've had to completely adjust to this new version of the world, and I've never totally adjusted. And Winky is scared that Dobby is changing what it means to be a house elf in a way that she's not going to be able to understand. And so she's already nostalgic for what it was before Dobby blew open what being a house elf could be. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think that when you sort of learn those things about other people, it can help inform like, okay, now I understand why we come at this present thing from such different angles. But, you know, I do think that the difference in those two examples is we're talking about someone in like one of the most oppressed classes versus the people who are at the top of the the chain. So (laughs) there's like a little bit of a a difference there. And I'm, I'm with you. I'm like so unsettled by everything to do with house elves in these books. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there is something to be said about like we get nostalgic for the times when we felt the most comfortable or the happiest, you know, some of the the best times from our perspective, even if our perspective, like within our own bubble, isn't even necessarily accurate because human memory is so fallible. But yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting way to think about it. I mean, I just think Winky is nostalgic for a time before Dobby entered into her brain as a possibility of another way of being. It's like, well, things were simpler before Dobby was out there demanding demanding payment. And I think just change is really scary. And I think every house elf probably responds to Dobby differently. But Winky, on this like very personal level, she, for whatever reason, and again, this is like within the paradigm of house elves, which is so disturbing, but she likes the comfort of being Barty Crouch's house elf right? Like she likes that stability. And 
Dobby is not trying to shake her stability, but Dobby just by existing and doing his own thing is. Yeah, I mean, and we we learn later how absolutely traumatized Winky is. So so I think it does make sense. You're right for her to want to hang on to any stability that she knows anything that because so much in her life, even apart from Dobby, is changing and being challenged right now. So, yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. And so it's funny, you can be nostalgic for a thing that you haven't totally lost yet. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) That's a big one. Yeah. We know that Winky is about to lose everything in the next two chapters, right? Like she's going to no longer be the Crouch's house elf. But she seems in this chapter to already be defensive and nostalgic for this thing, the purity of this thing that she hasn't even lost yet. Yeah. I mean, and there also seems to be this battle between the Weasleys and the Malfoys. The Malfoys are nostalgic mm. for the good old days when the Weasleys... Yeah, the good old days under Voldemort. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and where, like, being a pureblood meant something. Yeah. Jeez. And the Weasleys, even though they are also purebloods, are, like, very open to change and actually want the world to change. Mm-hmm. And the Malfoys are disgusted by that. And I think the Weasleys are disgusted by the Malfoys' nostalgia for a time of more oppression. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm increasingly glad that you at the top of this show brought up that panel with all the the white men (laughs) reminiscing about the 1950s, because I think that's a really just generally a good check on ourselves for nostalgia of like when we think about times that we're nostalgic for, like, all right, if they were okay for you, how bad might they have been for other people? And thinking of that through the lens of the Malfoys is, I, I think, particularly resonant because I don't want to have the same values as them. <laughs> like, oh, gross, no. Right. Yeah, I think that I think that that's such a good question about nostalgia because I think nostalgia overall is a feeling, right? For me, like, it's this feeling that comes in my chest where I'm just like, oh, remember that? And I think that there's certain things I think it's okay to just be shamelessly nostalgic for, but I often think we have to question what is the thing at the root of what I'm nostalgic for? And am I okay with it? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how meta you want to get here. As meta as you want. I'll follow you. One of the more complicated things that I've been working through nostalgia on is the Harry Potter series. (laughs) I mean, you know, this is a huge part of my life. And even just like reading this chapter, you know, like I said, I haven't reread this book too much as an adult at all. And when I open up like the first four books, especially that this one came out when I was 10, uh, I just hear Jim Dale, the U.S. audiobook narrator Mm -hmm. on every line because I listen to these audiobooks so much in like elementary and middle school. And so opening this book feels like my childhood, but parts of it hurt so much now because I have a lot of trouble separating everything that J.K. Rowling has said and done. And, you know, especially reading a chapter like this, it's it's dripping through the text. Uh, And so it's very complicated to think about how much of my life, you know, my childhood, but also for me, so much of my professional adult life and friends I've made and just so much of my life has been about these books and the the comfort that I found in them and everything I learned from them and finding myself through them. And now it's not great. And also recognizing that it never was for a lot of people, these books. Right. And I don't expect you to have an answer to this question, but I'm wondering if you can talk it through with me. But like, what do we do with those feelings? How do we parse out? Like, I know that my brothers were really nostalgic for, I think it was 2004, when Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were going back and forth with, like, their home run. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, like, battle for the most home runs. And my brothers are just, you know, huge baseball fans, and they had no stakes in it because it what you know, Sammy Sosa's Chicago and Mark McGuire, St. Louis, and my family's from California. So they, they, like, didn't care who won, but it was so exciting. And now, you know, there are all these doping things around that time. And often these things that we feel really nostalgic for, we get more information later and we're like, oh, this was so much more complicated. And yet it's almost like we want to hold on to the feelings while now holding on to the fact that it was more complicated all along. Yeah. You know, I think a lot about when I came on this podcast shortly after one of the big bursts of J.K. Rowling's transphobia that maybe after she wrote that big essay or something. And I remember Casper saying something about just how we need to continue to interrogate 
the text and the situation. And it's just sort of the idea that you can still enjoy it, but like, don't ignore everything, you know, your, your enjoyment should come sort of with continuing to grapple with everything. And I've sort of hung on to that for me. But I think the other thing that I've sort of learned is, is like, maybe I don't quite know what works for me yet, but I definitely want to respect what works for anyone else. And for so Mm -hmm. many people that was, I have nothing to do with Harry Potter anymore. I don't even want to think about it or see it anywhere. And I'm like, cool that I understand that. Uh, Or, you know, just in the varying levels between the two extremes and just sort of absolutely, you know, without question, kind of accepting that everyone's going to have their own feelings and approach to this particular situation and situations like it. And that feelings are going to change over time. Oh, yeah. Right. You might want to read them now and then have a kid and be like, do you know what? No, I'm not introducing my kid to this. Right. Or the other way Mm. around, be like, I need a break. And then you're like, but I loved this as a kid. I think that we also just have to leave ourselves space for having changing feelings about any situation. Yeah. I have a a sort of weird reference point (laughs) that I want to bring in, but have you heard about this upcoming horror movie that's turning Winnie the Pooh and Piglet into like serial killers? I have not. And I'm (laughs) horrified. Uh, it is a horror movie. So that's, that is the, you know, expected reaction. Uh, it's mm-hmm. called Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. It's like coming out this season and it's from like an independent production company who has done a lot of movies like this, but for some reason, like the pictures and trailer for this one went viral and, you know, because it's bringing up a lot of feelings in people and it just kind of sounds funny. The whole idea is like when Christopher Robin grew up, instead of like in some of the movies we've had where uh, he then like returns to Sherwood Forest and there's this nostalgic, happy scene. Instead, everyone in Sherwood Forest, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, et cetera, like felt abandoned and didn't have any resources to live and somehow turned to killing people. I don't know. It's a horror movie. It's not the best logic. But I was reading reviews about it coming up and this one journalist, Michael Walsh from Nerdist, brought up a really good point of how we can actually kind of think of this as like a you know, extreme, horrible, uh, you know, horror movie kind of representation of, as he put it, the dangers of revisiting the things we loved as kids and holding on to an idea of what they should be rather than dealing with what they are. I was like, wow, this is a really grotesque example of that. But what a what a beautiful take in this review of this horror movie. Uh, And really, I just felt like that that really uh, hit me in terms of thinking about the Harry Potter series in particular of like, we're just holding on to this thing of what we, we wish it were instead of actually thinking about what it really is. I think that part of what this gets to the heart of for me is our unknowability to one another and our constant mm. lack of perspective in the world. I think you picked the theme of humility the last time that you were on the show. Oh, Yeah. I think I did. (laughs) And these feelings around nostalgia that you're talking about, I think, again, are feelings of humility, right? That, you know, I grew up in LA and so there, we would go to Disneyland once a year. There was like a way for SoCal kids to go for 19 bucks. Like this was like a, a thing when we were little. And there's this photo of all five of us, which there are not a lot of photos of all five of us because my, one of my parents was usually taking the photo. So we must've handed a camera to a stranger. And it was right after I'd gone on my first roller coaster. And uh, this is like a very happy photo to me. And looking back, part of why it's a happy photo to me is that it was right before my parents told us, a couple days before my parents told us that my dad had a brain tumor. And my, my life changed, right? My dad's been sick ever since. But he was sick in that photo. And I, you know, I love this photo and my dad recently saw it and he was like, oh my God, I felt so sick that day. And he knew Mm. he had a tumor, but he did not know that roller coasters were going to be so physically hard on him now. And so in this photo where I remember, didn't even know that part of what I was remembering was this like last feeling of like the five of us as like healthy people, you know, it's seven or eight years old. But I didn't know that my dad was like in physical pain, right? And so it's it's just, I think that we even have to just go humbly into nostalgia, not just those white men on the panel 
but like family photos, right? Like you don't know what the other people in your family were feeling or dealing with or, you know, it could be as simple as like one of them just stubbed their toe and is like gritting through it. Or it could be, you know, I'm holding this brain tumor back from my family and I don't want the fact that I now feel sick to ruin what we've obviously curated to be like our kids one last like pure day. Yeah, man, I think that this goes a little bit back into what we were talking about, about like capturing those memories. Like, even though that was, you know, a really hard memory for your dad, like I'm, I feel really happy that you have that picture that you can kind of look at, you know, as sort of bookending one era of your life and you get to have that like physical visual thing to reminisce back on. But I totally agree with you of like, you know, photos having the, the different, experiences, even for the people in them, you know, again, being trans, like family photos, childhood photos. I am usually, and this is not, I'm in no way speaking for all trans people. I'm speaking for myself, but in my own personal, like in my bedroom, looking at photos of my childhood, for the most part, I'm usually okay with that and just feel like I just remember the memories and stuff like that. But sharing them is where it gets more complicated and sharing them with like other family or just like those times where it's like family members still want to have certain photos hanging up on the wall or the whole family has got together and they want to watch old home movies or something. And then they all like start misgendering me in the past and there's just like all these complications that like none of them seem to be considering. And so it's, it's one of those things that, you know, most trans people have to deal with that kind of sucks. But for me as someone who like does like nostalgia and like, I was so game to take all of those photos and videos growing up because I love having these memories. And so like, it, it's an extra bummer to have that complication now. And I'll say just for me that that photo has taken on new meaning of like, how hard my parents worked for that day, yeah. right? Now I don't see the purity of like this moment where I went on my, you know, first roller coaster, but I see that my parents were very sweetly intentionally trying to curate a moment for us and that my dad was actually going through a tremendous amount of sacrifice to make that happen. And that's beautiful in its own way. And then that's not always true, right, about what's beautiful in its own way. Right. The school photo where like the bully is in the background. Right. Or the photos of you that other family members are misgendering you on. Right. Like sometimes we can like you were saying about Harry Potter, sometimes we can look at it and be like, now I'm also going to read it critically, but I'm still going to love it. And other times we're like, do you know what? No, I just have to tear this photo in half. And it is it's not serving me. This nostalgia is not serving me. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place. So you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the borough. Download the Redfin app to get started. Okay. 
Okay, I we're I, we might have a hard time circling the wagons on what about this is nostalgia, but can we talk about the Vilas? Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> so the first thing I want to say about the Vilas is not to decentralize the experience of the Vilas, but I do want to talk about Ron and Harry's response to them, which is like physically risky to their health. Yeah, they're trying to jump off the box to impress them. So the Vilas, for those of you who maybe have forgotten, are... Th- the like quote unquote mascot of Bulgaria, which confuses me that like women can be mascots, but that also rings true for me with like right. cheerleaders in the United States. They're not mascots, they're cheerleaders, which is different, but I'll leave that aside. But it's also confusing to me because we know that there are like French villas because we meet Fleur's mom. So I don't know why this is like a Bulgarian mascot. But anyway, they are these magical women who come to, like, dance before the match in order to try to convince the crowd to cheer for Bulgaria. And they are, like, magically beautiful and glowing and so magically beautiful that it seems to be men. And I'm also really curious if this is, like, forcing queer folks to out themselves depending on their responses to the Vilas. I have always wondered about that. Right? I'm like, why is it only the men? Obviously, some women are going to be responding to this very strongly. But, you know, apparently Hermione is very, very, very straight. So she stays, like, totally calm. But Ron and Harry are so enchanted with the Vilas which is the Vila's goal, that they want to jump out of the top box and are beginning to do so in order to impress the Vila's. And then it's got to be Hermione, like, as a young woman, saving them and noticing and like like it's got to be the work on her this is what bothers me about the villa like i and and i i have a little bit of like back and forth because i absolutely want to like respect the agency of the villa to the extent that they have it when they're being hired as quote-unquote mascots but the way it is set up to us as readers it so feels like in a lot of cultures where it's like men cannot control their urges around beautiful women or women who are wearing certain types of clothing. Like it just reeks of that. And that's kind of what bothers me about it. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's the Mike Pence school of logic of I cannot be alone in a room with a woman out of respect for the women because I will not be able to control myself. Right. But this is more This is just more insidious because they magically seem to literally not be able to control themselves, which is always this question of like, what is the magic pointing toward? And I think that you've articulated perfectly what the magic is pointing toward, which is this gendered idea that like men cannot control themselves or they need to somehow learn how to because Arthur seems okay. Right. Arthur is laughing and is like, wait until the leprechauns have their say. The Irish team is going to be able to convince you to root for their team in just a minute. But that that's some sort of like urge you need to learn to control. Yeah. I mean, that's very much the way it feels of like Arthur, father of however many boys, six or (laughs) however many it is, like, you know, all teenagers at this point. He's like, oh, this is this is my role. I must teach my sons to control their urges around women. Yeah, I don't know. There's 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 a lot here, but you're right that we do see throughout the books of other instances of men like learning how to sort of control themselves around Vila or people who are part Vila like Fleur. Yeah, which it is important that we all learn how to behave around each other. That just yeah. doesn't feel like what's going on here. I think that you're right that there seems to be a claim in this Vila situation that it's the women's fault. Like they're so magically beautiful that men are willing to die over them. And so there's something about the women in the way that they're dressing that makes it so that men cannot control themselves. Will Jackson, thank you so much for this conversation. Nostalgia, complicated. Yeah, so complicated. (laughs) That's the digest. (laughs) The TLDR. Yes.
So Jackson, we are now going to do sacred imagination, which is our sacred reading practice in which this time I have picked a passage to read aloud to you. And the invitation is for you to imagine yourself into the scene. And there are over 100,000 options for who you can imagine yourself into because we're at the Quidditch World Cup. So you can be an alternate for the Bulgaria team. <laughs> you can be an alternate <laughs> for the Bulgaria team. You can be any spectator. You can be a fly on the wall. You can be the characters who I am describing here. And we are trying to get a sense of what our sensory experiences are in this space. So what are we smelling? What are we tasting? What are we touching? What are we seeing? And the the point of this is to imagine ourselves into the scene as if it was real and as if we were there in order to try to gain perspective on what's happening. That we maybe, no matter how many times we've listened to Jim Dale read this, we've maybe never, <laughs> you know, noticed before. So here we go. As one, the Weasley boys and Harry stuffed their fingers into their ears, but Hermione, who hadn't bothered, was soon tugging on Harry's arm. He turned to look at her, and she pulled his fingers impatiently out of his ears. Look at the referee, she said, giggling. Harry looked down at the field. Hassan Mustafa had landed right in front of the dancing villa and was acting very oddly indeed. He was flexing his muscles and smoothing his mustache excitedly. Now we can't have that, said Ludo Bagman, though he sounded highly amused. Somebody slapped the referee. A Medi wizard came tearing across the field, his fingers stuffed into his own ears, and kicked Mustafa hard in the shins. Mustafa seemed to come to himself. Harry, watching through the omnioculars again, saw that he looked exceptionally embarrassed and had started shouting at the villa, who had stopped dancing and were looking mutinous. And unless I'm much mistaken, Mustafa is actually attempting to send off the Bulgarian team mascots, said Bagman's voice. Now there's something we haven't seen before. Oh, this could turn nasty. It did. The Bulgarian beaters, Volkov and Volkanov, landed on either side of Mustafa and began arguing furiously with him, gesticulating toward the leprechauns, who had now gleefully formed the words, he, he, he. Mustafa was not impressed by the Bulgarians' arguments, however. He was jabbing his finger into the air, clearly telling them to get flying again, and when they refused, he gave two short blasts on his whistle. So, Jackson... Who were you? What did you notice? I was having trouble trying to decide who to be, because an interesting thing about the start of that passage is that presumably half of the stadium didn't actually see or hear what was happening. Yes. And then half did. And so I was like, oh, which side of this do I want to be on? And like, what's more (laughs) disorienting of, of like not knowing what's going on and then seeing or having watched it all and being frustrated by what's happening? Yeah, I I feel like I'm Hermione in this scene or a Hermione-like person, and I'm just mortified for this man. I find it physically mm. painful to watch someone get embarrassed or embarrass themselves. And like that feeling of, you know, your cheeks burning and like wanting to close your eyes and just like being disgusted on someone's behalf. And then I think the other thing that's really troubling to me is that I just think of like medics as like first do no harm and like watching a medic run onto a field to kick someone as like a form of treatment. I think I like, I'm profoundly disturbed by this whole thing if I am not attracted to Vila's in this audience. If I'm a straight woman in this audience, I'm like watching men stuff their fingers in their ears. And I think it's important that I'm Hermione actually, because like as a young woman, right? Like just this like overwhelming feeling of disgust. I'm at this height. I can just imagine getting physically nauseous at this point in the Quidditch World Cup. Yeah, I think especially as someone who like so much of this is new, like just brand new experiences that like Hermione did not grow up with. So there's a lot of things that many people in the stadium are like, oh, that's just how it is. And she's like, no, 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 it does not have to be. Why is it like this? 
I was just sort of imagining myself as, I guess, I guess more of like a neutral person, not up in the top box, but somewhere else in the stands. And I very much also felt the uh, the secondhand cringe for the referee, especially because you think about referees and like, this is the Quidditch World Cup. This this could be one of the biggest moments of his career. And then he has that embarrassing moment that even the commentator up in the stands is instructing the audience to laugh at. And so like, yeah. I I was definitely feeling some of the like, no, I don't want to think that this is a funny thing, but then also feeling like almost felt like the Bulgarian team started getting picked on just because that was like the expression of the referee's embarrassment of like, well, now I'm going to like penalize the team for something that I did, even though I was sort of like magically, you know, not quite in control of myself. Yeah. All of those different, like just mixed emotions. I'm finding myself now just sort of like physically like pulling myself like into myself like like right. making myself like smaller and, and tensing up because I'm uncomfortable with everything going on around me it like reminds me of how I felt at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings like watching mm. that where you're just like watching a man get angry and you're like no like this is patriarchy and this is decisions you made or right like but your expression of anger is so frightening and inappropriate and just like how sickening those moments are. Mm, Yeah, that is a very good way to put it and totally what happens. The fate of the game is somewhat decided by this moment. The fact that he sends the team back. And we know that like an emotional thing can really change the way you play, right? We talk about home court advantage, right? Just Mm -hmm. having your own fans can make a difference. And so, especially with the magical abilities of the Vilas or just something being called not the way that you want it called can distract you. And therefore you don't play as well. Yeah. Well, and especially thinking of like, you know, being someone in the stands, if you're on the Irish side, are you cheering that this is happening? And if you're on the Bulgarian side, are you like extra upset about what's going on? And so now, you know, we we sort of see towards the end of the game that the Bulgarian team is just like at their wits end, which I I think, again, sort of explains Crumb's decision. But I think players and spectators from Bulgaria are just like, this has all been a mess. And it's not that like happy, supportive thing anymore. And I can only imagine like, you know, pre- all the very bad stuff that happens in the next chapter, there were probably already like fights breaking out between supporters after this game because this was not like a good, clean game. Yeah. It's also strange that for like a game, so much of which like takes place in the air and with like a snitch, like running around all over the place, there's only one referee. Yeah, definitely need some more refs. Yeah. And that reminds me that one feeling I was definitely having as you were reading is just a... Uh, not a fear of heights, but what what is like, is there a motion sickness equivalent for watching Quidditch? I just feel like you're up high and you're just watching something in the air. And like, I started feeling how I do when I've been in a car too long. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Jackson, I, I love that you and I both left the sacred imagination feeling sick, but I am sorry <laughs> that I made you sick. But thank you so much for embarking on this with me. Yeah, it was my first time doing Sacred Imagination, actually. So thank you for for leading me through it. We don't always make you uh, nauseous. I don't know. I'm a pretty nauseous person, so I would take that as a (laughs) challenge. It might always make me (laughs) nauseous. (laughs) This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even- 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Our voicemail this week is from Sydney. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. So I've been thinking a lot about the discussion about the Boggart in Book 3, Chapter 12, The Patronus. Matt points out the Boggart's form is purely for creating fear, not necessarily creating harm. But I've been thinking a lot about the question of why would a Boggart need to create fear? It made me think of a type of animal camouflage where an organism mimics something scarier to deter predators. Moths with wing patterns that look like owl eyes, snakes that mimic the colorings of other poisonous snakes. These animals don't want to be attacked and so make themselves fearsome to others. I see this in my own life too. My dog, who is a rescue, makes herself more intimidating when approached by other dogs because of past traumas. I, myself, appear more fearsome and intimidating when approached by men when alone, due to my own past experiences. And boggarts, who are small enough to hide in the back of a dresser or desk drawer, mimic fearsome creatures when approached by witches and wizards. Why? Well, I think it must be traumatic in every encounter with a witch and wizard, and you're made to feel ridiculous. And I can't help but wonder if this cycle just perpetuates itself. Wizards ridiculousing boggarts and boggarts scaring wizards and on and on. Remus tells us that nobody knows what a boggart's true form is. And that statement struck me in a new way. How heartbreaking that must be to be too afraid of the world to show your true self. So while I don't condone scaring people due to your past trauma, I do have a blessing for anyone searching for a place or people where you can show your true self. That is a gift. And I ask Matt and Vanessa, what do you think a barter's true form looks like when it's alone? Thank you for the podcast. Bye. Wow, Sydney, that was deep in so many ways. Oh my gosh. I also, I love the initial premise of bog arts as like animals with the sort of like defensive mechanism to make themselves look scarier and then also thinking about the ways that we all do that in certain situations i totally like try to make myself look tougher so i don't get bothered by people sometimes when i'm I'm like fearing for myself but a bog arts true form i don't know yeah, Sydney, thank you so much for this voicemail. I love the idea that a bogger is like this tiny, sweet thing that loves being in a dark space, right? That's like, I am happy here. <laughs> Leave me alone. And so when it gets revealed, it is this frightening thing. I guess my answer for what a bogger looks like is that I think it's unknowability is its gift. The fact that we have no idea what it looks like is part of its magic. And I wonder if it's our job to respect that mystery and practice respecting that mystery, right? We, whether or not we choose to assume good intentions in the bogger, right? I, I think that I'm tempted to say, I think that it's important to respect the mystery of the bogger. Jackson, do you have any thoughts on that? I really love that idea, especially because Sydney was sort of getting into the idea of, you know, when someone doesn't quite know themselves yet. And I, I have never before thought about the queer or trans reading of Bogarts, who we are introduced as like literally being in closets. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and, you know, I think when you have a friend, you can tell they're going through something and it could be anything, but, you know, thinking that, you, hey, maybe they are working through their gender, or their sexuality, like your job is not to like guess what their identity is that they haven't told you yet. Your job is just to be there for them and to help them and support them. You don't need to like question and, and, and gossip and try to guess at who they are. Uh, you just sort of wait for them to come to you. And, and hopefully neither of you in that situation are doing the uh, defensive mechanism of turning into something scary and then embarrassing the other one because we just talked about how uh, em- embarrassment can lead to all sorts of negative things. Yeah, this actually dovetailed really well with our, our discussion there yeah. about embarrassment and, and the ways that we can react to that. Thank you so much, Sydney. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost Kendall Chun, a beloved teacher, friend, and tinkerer. Cole, who was 30, a husband, nerd, and inspiration to all. Tessa Powell, 13, gave the best hugs ever. Laverne Lubers, 85, Fierce, stubborn matriarch and the quitting queen. Lonlon Sitoji, who is unborn and a darling of family and church. Paul Belsley, 75, a loving father and grandfather and proud veteran. Pat Willette, who was 33, a friend, confident, and the life of every party. And Stanley Gordon, who was 85, a feisty husband and grandfather. May their memories be a blessing to us all. So Jackson, it's now time for us to offer blessings for characters in the novel. Who would you like to bless? I think I actually want to give a blessing to Harry Potter in this one. Mm. For similar reasons of what we were talking about with Hermione of just like, this is all a lot of new and weird experiences that are not necessarily good. He's having these like the reactions to the villa. He tried to talk to this this house elf about his friend Dobby, and then that experience didn't go how he thought. He's got the Malfoys here, like his big bully and enemy, and then he's got Cornelius Fudge trying to show him off as this, like, you know, famous kid. And he's just here trying to, like, enjoy this Quidditch game, and so there's just, like, I feel like there's, there's a lot going on for him in this moment in a lot of, like, really weird and confusing type of experiences, and so I just want to say a little blessing for, for a little Harry Potter in this one. <laughs> And his, like, complete overwhelm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's not about to get easier. No. No, unfortunately, like, even though I am I am blessing him for all of these, like, weird, fairly normal growing up experiences in this chapter, usually he has a lot more going on. <sighs> all the blessings for Harry, always. I want to bless this referee. I know we talked about this quite a bit, but... I just, like, this is now going to be the thing he's remembered for. Like, this is it. This is his legacy. This is probably somebody who spent his whole career working toward a moment like this. And instead, he's going to be remembered as the referee who got embarrassed by the Vila at the Quidditch World Cup. And I find that heartbreaking. And I hope that when he retires from refereeing, he, like, has a wonderful second career as a beekeeper or something really meaningful as a mail carrier and just like really loves that next phase of his life rather than spending the rest of his life regretting that the apex of his career ended in this humiliation. And I think I'm pretty passionate about the idea that we have multiple stages of life that can have nothing to do with a previous stage. And I hope that the referee finds that. Next week, we're reading book four, chapter nine, The Dark Mark, through the theme of humility. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. We have ad-free episodes through Patreon or through Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe at the top of your feed if you are listening to us 
through Apple Podcasts. We also have a Not Sorry Productions summer camp that's for sale that the great and good Jackson Bird will be at, and we're very excited to have him. We also have several pilgrimages you can learn more about. We have a live show coming up in Denver, Colorado. You can find out more about all of this by going to notsorryworks.com. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our audio engineer is Erica Wong. And our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Sydney for this week's voicemail. Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Margaret H. Wilson, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkile, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, everybody who sent in the names of their loved ones. And a special, special thanks this week, of course, to the great and good Jackson Bird. <laughs> thanks so much. Thank you for having me. You make me feel like the Wizard of Oz almost there. Like, <laughs> But great and good is better than great and powerful, oh. as we kind of talked about. I mean, you are powerful, but that's, you know, we no more or less than anyone else. Exactly. We all like have that. powers. <laughs>